Welcome to Son of a Preacher Man with Jonathan Martin, a podcast all about finding beauty and brokenness, grace and grit, God and the ambiguity of the in-between. Welcome to Deconstructing Deconstruction Part 2. The black church tradition in America offers an alternative perspective on how faith responds to trauma and pain from what we often hear in popular culture. In this episode, C.C. Jones Davis offers an alternative to Exodus leaving faith of exfoliation and shares why she holds a spirituality where you don't throw anything away. Last week, I got here hot off a plane from South Africa, jet lagged, and um, probably said some things clumsier than they could have been said, but also some things I really care about too, and just kind of got into a whole thing. And instead of backing away from the whole thing, I thought, I think I need to go deeper into the thing, but I need some help in the thing. So I'm very excited tonight here that in just a moment, uh, Cece Jones Davis is going to join me. She is, of course, the real weapon on the preaching team around here. I'm just the appetizer. I'm the warm up. It's like, you know, I mean, take or leave me. Cece's CeCe's the rock star here. And thus far, you know, we've been kind of been trading off on teaching responsibilities, but this is the first time that we've actually done any sort of proper tag team preaching. So tonight we're tag team, and I'm very excited about that because uh, although I, I don't know why when we're both up here, you, you wouldn't just be listening to Cece because she's that great. So without uh, further ado, Cece, would you join me on the stage? And let's just, we'll, we'll, we'll get the chairs. We'll get the chairs and we'll get comfortable. So now, now if we get to feeling anointed and we need to stand or run or we, we will definitely do that. But y'all, would you show your love to Cece Jones Davis? Don't you appreciate her? Who doesn't love Cece? Everybody loves Cece, but the devil, I'll tell you right now. And as I often like to say, and I, my, me and my sort of old time Southern Pentecostal preacher stick, like it's a real fine line between the stick and the reality and the team never really knows. But one of my favorite things I like to say when I'm with Cece is I often like to say, you know, the devil doesn't like it when we get together. <laughs> so they don't know how to take me either. That's really depressing. Um, but I, I'm, I'm so glad that you're joining me. And um, before, because in just a second, I want to kick it over to you for some questions. But if, if you'll give me just a, a couple moments here to sort of recap some of what I talked about last week and maybe bring some of you guys up to speed and... Um, Taylor, actually, you know what? Even before I do that, Cece, would you mind praying for us? Would you do yes, that? Let's do that. Cece believes in prayer. See, uh, we let Cece do the praying. She has. The, she's the one again. The connection with the Lord here. So I figured <laughs> I'll defer to you on the Hilarious. prayer. Let's pray. <laughs> Eternal and all wise God, it is just so amazing to be gathered together in Your name. Um, people, God, from so many different places. And Lord, I just um, pray for more of your spirit to, to come and grow in our presence. And um, God, forget my understanding. Forget our understanding. We need your understanding. We need your love. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your healing. We need everything that you've got. And so, um, Lord, tonight we just rely. We rely on you. We rely on you to be here with us and to speak to us uh, in the ways that you need to speak to us. So you're welcome. You're so welcome. Not only are you welcome, you're wanted. You're deeply desired in our midst. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Cece. Cece's my dear friend, and it's such a joy that we get to do this together. So uh, here's the thing. I, I want you to know, first of all, that in this little teaching I'm doing, um, and that we're doing together tonight. I feel like I'm, I'm violating a few of my own rules. For one, I will probably at some point refer to the gospel text for the week, but I still feel like it's not properly preaching from the text the way I normally would. I also think, generally speaking, part of the beauty in preaching from the, the gospel text from the lectionary, which is, you know, a lot of churches from different traditions around the world will use on Sundays, um, is that there's a wonderful like simplicity to that, which I realized part of what I'm could be erring on for these couple of weeks 
is potentially getting into some kind of inside baseball conversation that I feel like just requires a lot of explanation and setup. So I'm, I'm saying that to say some of you, I think, might really like this and it might be where, where you are. If this is not where you are, hang with us a little while longer because I feel like it's even part of a broader conversation that I've been part of for the last couple of years, you know, because I feel like part of my lot in life these days is for whatever the reason, I feel like so many of the people I'm most drawn to um, are kind of these disenfranchised, disillusioned daughters and sons of the church and who I feel like are disillusioned for good reason. So oftentimes, even when I've seen people leaving the institutional church, far from being the one pointing the finger, what I've actually seen is movement of the spirit in those folks, because I think oftentimes there are things that are toxic and unhealthy in religious systems. I happen to believe that part of what's happening in our time, and again, I'm going to qualify a lot of things tonight, but please hear the spirit in which this is said. I actually think a lot of our religious systems are under judgment right now, which doesn't mean that an angry, wrathful God is going to get people for their hypocrisy. All judgment really is, is God holding up the mirror to allow us to see our true selves (laughs) and allowing us to get what we choose. And I think sometimes, you know, um, we have these religious toxic uh, systems that are what we've chosen. I think we're in a time right now that's a very apocalyptic time where we're able to see some of these things, what they are, and there are real reasons that people have for being disillusioned and all that. So please understand that in terms of this broader conversation, I'm a big defender and champion or try to be for those daughters and those sons of the church and for their place. And, you know, as I talk about a lot, uh, God is in, in Jesus. We have the God who will walk with you on the road away from God. Now, the flip side of that is that, and this was the context really for the talk last week. I feel like a lot of people right now will use language of deconstruction talk a lot about kind of deconstructing their faith, which I don't think is always unhelpful. Um, especially if the idea is, I think a helpful kind of deconstruction can be, okay, what in my understanding of God and religion and church, what in that actually comes from uh, scripture? What in that comes from tradition, good tradition? What might come from an unhealthier parts of tradition? I think unraveling all of that, identifying some of that, uh, stripping some of that down can be really good. But I also like I'm also kind of wanting to push back some on kind of the deconstructing thing. And forgive me, Cece, I hope I'm not over-talking a thing up front. The thing I felt like I kind of need to say right out of the gate this week, because in all my jet-lagged rambling last week, I feel like I never got around to saying that. I feel like it's a simple premise, but I feel like it just kind of has to be said, is that I feel like when a lot of people now talk about leaving the faith, leaving Christianity, leaving the church— Hey, um, people come in and out of faith in different seasons of their life for lots of different reasons. I'm never going to be the person to try to coerce anybody, tell them what to do, beg them to stay like none of that. But what I do find myself doing a lot these days is wanting to ask some critical questions like, what faith is it that you're rejecting? (laughs) Which Christianity? Which God? Because, and, and here I feel like, um, I might be going a little provocative the other way, but I feel like I'm already in so deep in this. I don't know if there's any kind of going back now. In my opinion, I'm not convinced that Martin Luther King Jr. and Jerry Falwell Jr. talk about the same Jesus. I'm willing to say that I think those are different religions. I'm not trying to say that anybody who doesn't worship Jesus or talk about Jesus like I do is not a real follower of Jesus. But see, here's the trouble, right? Is that like Christians can disagree on a variety of different kinds of things. You know, people have different convictions about politics, the size and scope of government, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. But when your religion basically becomes this sort of nationalistic system where basically um, America is God, a certain vision of, of America is God, You might have some Bible verses to back this up. You might use the name of Jesus, but I'm convinced that some of the, that that some of what is said, what what is talked about in the name of Jesus right now, I, I, I don't recognize that as, as Christianity. I don't recognize that as the way of Jesus. 
And, and so it makes me want to ask, again, some critical questions in terms of like, okay, well, what, what God exactly are you walking away from? What Christianity? Because where I can get a little scrappy about these things is that I, I, I'm not, I personally kind of have this passion that I don't want to let people that I think are hijacking the faith take the Bible away from me. <laughs> you don't get to take Jesus away from me. Who do you think you are? so much of what I think that people think of now as being traditional Christianity and they think of it as having this deep heritage, like, Oh no, that's, that's been around about 50 or 60 years in its current form. That's not old. A lot of what, a lot of what people think of as old time religion is really not old time at all. It's actually quite newfangled. You know what you hear them saying? And so like, I'm just this whole question of like, which Jesus? And I promise you, see, I'm about to start asking questions and I really am going to shut up. But one thing, the other thing I just wanted to share just to lead, because I've thought about this so much. And, you know, if I can even pull this up now, uh, I thought I had this a second ago. My friend, uh, Lisa Sharon Harper is a really, really powerful person. And Lisa wrote something a while back that I just wanted to share in context of this conversation. And Lord have mercy, I don't even have enough signal in this room. See, you know what? This is what happens when you when you lean on the technology. See, see, this is why. This is why I was in, a, in, in an old Pentecostal meeting one time when I heard a preacher get up and say, and a lot of people these days talking about all that PowerPoint. Well, you know, I don't I don't know about all that, but I know I got Holy Ghost power. And brother, I believe that's the point. I think so, because I am definitely not able to pull up a single thing on my phone in this in this black hole where the internet does not exist in this moment. So we'll just throw that out. Let let me let me go ahead and punt to you here, Cece. So like, part of the reason I felt like I wanted you to speak into this conversation is I thought about a private conversation we had soon after um, I moved here in which we were talking about this whole phenomenon of how, and again, I always say that without judgment, but I do know, especially a lot of 20 and 30 something and younger, but definitely a lot of 20 and 30 something folks coming out of white evangelicalism who feel like they've got a faith that been handed a tradition that is misogynistic, homophobic, doesn't unconcerned with creation and uh, the care of creation and with the poor and find themselves rejecting that faith. And for them, what rejecting that faith often looks like is walking away from Jesus, enough of Jesus, enough of Bible, enough of the church, whatever. And I specifically remember you saying to me one day that in your experience, like that, Whatever deconstruction, because I know everybody has that time of kind of sifting and sorting and your faith has to become your own or whatever, that just, that doesn't happen the same way in the black church or for black Christians. No. Can you tell me more about that and why yeah. you think that is? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I guess looking at, Af- at Christianity through an African-American lens there are for to, to be an African American person in my experience is to be without certain luxuries and and I have not found uh African American people in general to particularly have a lu- the luxury of throwing things away and so um when we're talking about Christianity in America right from an African American perspective. You have to remember that 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 experience comes with um, slave old holders using the Bible to to enslave African people, um, white people saying that the Bible validates the fact that African Americans are not fully human, et cetera, et cetera. But what black people have had to do, and I can say this because I'm a black person, what so many of us have had to do, not just my generation, and, but, but since we've gotten here, right? Since Christianity has been a huge part of our cultivation here in America, we have had to redefine what it means to follow Jesus. From the very beginning, we have had to, we have had to create a worship experience for ourselves when we were not 
um, welcomed or accepted in spaces of worship. And so this idea, you know, I, when I went to um, divinity school, I think I was in a systematic theology class. And the TA in that class, my first semester, and the TA in that class said, when you come into like a rigorous theological environment, the goal is to kind of come in and drop. It's like having a crystal ball, right? You're walking in the school with a crystal ball. You drop that ball and the whole three years is about piecing things together, seeing what makes sense now, right? Um, and so I think that African-American people have always been theologically rigorous, but we, we understand that the God that you mentioned that, you know, some of these other folks are talking about, that's never the God we've known. You know, that's never the God that we've known. And that's why we have a whole different kind of worship. If you go to a black church, you'll probably understand it better. We have a whole other kind of worship experience. Completely. And that experience is, is birthed out of almost a holy rebellion that while you said we weren't loved, while you said we weren't cared for, that, that God has always loved us. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a sort of what you see in our worship experience, in my opinion, is like a holy defiance. Right. And saying, no, 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 no. He is our God. And and not just is God, God, but no, no, the, the Jesus that you talk about. The Jesus whose cross you burn in our yards, that's our God, right? And so we have not had the luxury to throw things away. When, when, um, when black folks, you know, in communities had to scrounge around for what we were going to eat and you know, maybe the master's house got the best cut of the chicken or the the hog or whatever the, the food was. We had to learn what it was to cook intestines. We had to learn what it was to cook whatever they didn't want. We had to learn to make pig feet and ears and tails and organs a delicacy. And if you go to soul food restaurants, so many of those things are on the menu. And so we, we as a people have understood what it means and look like to reclaim a thing for ourselves. Right. And so for me, I'm, I hope that this generation and beyond can understand that we don't have to throw things away. We can redefine a thing. We can reclaim a thing. But, but to throw something away is to, is to number one, give somebody else entirely too much power. And then number two is to lose such a tremendous part of ourselves. And, and so from my perspective, when we talk about deconstruction, from my lens, you know, African-American people have been de- deconstructing a long time and we have always been able to find in the same Bible that everybody else reads, the God of the oppressed. We've always been able to find a liberator. We've always been able to find one. Well, you know, we sing we sing all these songs in the African-American church, but, you know, we, we sing a song that says he'll make a way out of no way. We've always been able to identify with with that God. And so. I'm really a proponent to, you know, try to encourage people, regardless of what has happened to you. There's too many of us who've had real events, real spiritual events in our lives that we can't explain away or forget. And I try to encourage folks to hang on to that, hang on to that spirituality. Now, you know, we have to take the the meat and leave the bones sometimes. But don't throw everything away. Don't, yeah, don't throw everything away. You said a word, Cece, I've heard you use a number of times, and I'm literally thinking about this every day right now, is this notion of reclaiming, reclaiming, reclaiming. That just feels like such an empowering word. I mean, you you talked about that expressly, like this idea of of kind of not giving power away. I think... um I guess what it really calls into question, you know, for me, as you're even talking about these things and you talk about 
the slave holder, the slave owner using the Bible one way and the slave reading the Bible a different way. Like, I guess I feel like those are the things that really are at stake. It's like at its core is, you know, and, and whether or not I want to talk about it, I mean, it, some people say, well, it's not really, really, it is a religion. I mean, Christianity, the Jesus movement at its center, is it a religion of the oppressed or of the oppressor? Is it a slaveholder religion or is it, uh, or, or does it exist in defiance or, or protest to that? I feel like those are the critical questions that, you know, you're kind of pushing us towards. And I don't know. I just find it so interesting that, I don't know. I kind of feel like even within the text itself, that that conversation was always happening because you even like it, like in the old Testament, you have this whole sort of dispute really between, um, the priest and the prophets that the, the priestly tradition, there's a kind of self preservation of the institution and let's keep the festivals and let's keep the feast. But the prophets come along saying, Oh, God says, I hate your feast. I hate your festivals. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in like that conversation is happening within the text. You know, uh, Solomon builds the temple off slave labor. But if you know what you're reading, there's this critique within the text that everything's really not all right about Solomon. If Solomon might have been wise in some ways, but 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 it's not godly wisdom. It wasn't the right kind of wisdom. That's actually being critiqued. And um, I don't know. I just I just I just love the way that you frame it in terms of for you, this has always been a story about liberation. This has always been a freedom story. Yeah, you know, I personally I it's hard for me to see it read another way. Yeah. You know? Um, and maybe that's because of the lens, my lens, but um, I, I, I don't understand. I don't see how you can read the story of a Palestinian Jew, you know, who who the religious folks hated, you know, and talked about a kingdom that was that was not the local kingdom. You know, I don't know how you can how you can look at the story and the people that he encountered and the adulterous woman and, you know, and the, and the, um, Samaritan woman and all the folks, you know, that, that he encountered the 10 lepers and everybody else and not understand this to be the God of, of the margins, you know? Um, now, I know that, you know, the New Testament can be really complex and that, you know, Paul introduces some language that um, is is hard, you know, um, to some degree and and has been been used to oppress people for thousands of years at this point. Um, but, you know, in as much as respect and I want to say this really respectfully, as much respect as I have for Paul and appreciation I have for him for the ways in which. God has used him in writing two thirds of the New Testament. I don't follow Paul. You know, I don't follow Paul. I Who follow, you follow I follow Jesus all day and all night as long as best as I can, you know. And so and so I think so much um, we try to live outside of the Gospels when really, in my opinion, if we do our best to live in the Gospels, we're cooking with grease. You know what I mean? Like I and in the complexities, I think, of what the the church faces right now, just on on a very large scale and globally. If I can just focus on those four books and get it and get that halfway right, I feel I feel pretty all pretty good, you know, in that who I'm following, I'm following because of not just what he said, but what he did. Not just what he said and did, but what he didn't do. And if I can, if I can live in that tradition in that way, if I can live in that way, um, again, I'm very respectful for all of the rest of the Bible. It's all holy to me, but that's where, that's where I find the simplification. That's where I find the common denominator, the bottom line, you know, everything that I want, want to be. Is there? That's so good, Cece. And this is this is so crucial. By the way, is that um, this question of how we read Scripture? I mean, it's everything because you know I'm fully convinced, and I, I talk about this a lot. This idea that we interpret everything that we think we know about God, everything else, the rest of the story, everything else in Scripture, 
through the lens of Jesus and the gospel. And that, that's crucial. Like we read Paul through Jesus, not Jesus through Paul. And, and I, and I would even want to say like for Paul there, you know, and I, I could get myself into real trouble if I maybe went deep enough into this, um, because I've got, I don't know, there's some stuff in terms of even some household, uh, these, these sort of, a couple of passages in the New Testament in terms of like the, now everybody keep the rules and, and make sure whatever, like, I have some real questions about whether or not some of that is Paul. I think the actual Paul, and I think Paul at his best to be sure, is, you know, what you get in Galatians, which is what you have. No one else in the ancient world says nothing, anything remotely like this, that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. Nobody's talking like that. I think like that's the real Paul. And that even if that kind of household code stuff actually is Paul, I think at best, maybe there's a little bit of like a, okay, now everybody don't burn everything down at one time. Let's be peaceable and kind of take our time or whatever. But I think Paul rightly understood, like Paul's, Paul's a radical. And if we're, and if we always read Paul epistles, Old Testament, anything else through the lens of Jesus and not the other way around, you never lose sight of that. But I think we're, you know, this, and by the way, this isn't an arbitrary riff. I'm convinced that the earliest Christians, they read everything distinctly through the, the prism of Jesus. It's why all the, Writers in the New Testament, when do they, uh, they quote the Old Testament in almost drunken ways. It doesn't, it, it, these aren't all messianic prophecies. Everything they read in the Old Testament was suddenly about Jesus because they're so in love with Jesus. They see Jesus in every single text, whether or not it was expressly meant to be about him or not. You know, like it's such a Jesus saturated, just I'll say it again, Jesus intoxicated way of reading everything. Jesus, 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 through the stories of Jesus, the person of Jesus. Um, I did, I did was actually pull up my, my quote and I want to, I definitely, I want to read that and I want to get your commentary on a second, CC. But before I do that, I got to ask you this question too. Like there's, it's funny because I think about this a lot these days and I feel like, especially where I come from, some people I know, and I may, and maybe it just sounds weird to people when a white guy from the South talks like this. But when I spent, um, formative years reading people like Dr. James Cohn, and for the first time encountered the statement that God as revealed in Christ is black. Mm-hmm. Like that statement actually means a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, still now I feel like, you know, maybe all the more in this part of the country to say such a thing, people look at you like you have a third eye, mm-hmm. but like even just to say that now, what, I, I, what does that mean to you to even hear when someone like a James Cohn says that God is black? What is that? What does that mean to you? Yeah, I, you know, number one, I think for me, it means that Christ identifies with the oppressed, right? And not just black, but brown. Um, but I also think that it means for black people that, that we are not serving a white God. And, um, and that's important because the narrative about God, uh, around uh, for African-American people in America, what we've been told about God, um, the pictures that we have seen about God, you know, G- Jesus, as far as I've seen, has mainly been, been white in pictures. Um, there's something about um, identity that's really important. Now, for me personally, is that, a, is that like, um, ultimate to me? No, it's not ultimate, an idea that God is black, but it's more, it's more important to me that we have a sense that God could be black, right? And that, and that there would be nothing wrong with God being black. Um, because it starts to tear down that the narrative that of white superiority, right? Of white supremacy. That if God is white and you are white, then you guys have to be closer than me and God. It starts to tear that, that, that psychology down, you know? And so for me, um, you know, that is a, that is a really big part of liberation theology, you know, that, that God can be seen, um, through the prism of, of anybody's identity. Anybody's lens. God could be not just black. God could be Japanese. 
God could be Native American. God can be all sorts of things. That's important. That's, that's a bold, bold statement, but it's an important statement to say because God has always, especially in America and around the world, been, de- been depicted as white. And that has been intentional. That's not a mistake. We have, we have portrayed God as white to say what white means. And so to, to make declarative statements like God is black, that's not so important to me. Other, uh, um, outside of the notion that in that means that God could be black and that would be great. Or God could be anything other than white and that would be fine. And then, then the question will come, is that all right for the majority? How does that sit with the majority? James Cone got a lot of flack in the, the, um, the theological world because, you know, white theologians couldn't handle that kind of statement. You know, that's, that's, it's a huge challenge, but I think a necessary one. Well, cause it like, you know, I never heard that as like a dogmatic assertion about Jesus' skin tone, but this idea, you know, uh, that, that I feel like you're pointing to, it's like, even kind of as a social construct, God is, God is among the, is among the oppressed. Yeah. And it's, and when people, but the fact though that even, even though I don't think it's intended to be like super dogmatic, like some other, like reverse fundamentalism, oh no, like he's real, like, and it's not so much about skin tone per se, but the fact that people react so strongly yeah. to the idea that Jesus' skin tone could be that dark says plenty. Because when people see, you know, a Jesus movie with Max von Sydow, who's freaking Swedish as Jesus or Jim Caviezel or whoever else. No one's being like, my stars and garters, that's outlandish. Like no one's like, you know, no one freaks out at that. But the idea that that gets that kind of visceral response. I mean, that just really says what we've done to Jesus, like what we have done to Christianity. Mm -hmm. We've whitewashed it in a way that that suits our need to to be better to be first to be to be all you know we we've whitewashed the faith we've done the same with nationalism you know we've in my opinion exchanged nationalism for christianity we've married them together and they do not belong together as far as i'm concerned you know um Jesus, let me just doesn't love America any more than he loves anywhere else. He he doesn't. He loves us and all, but he loves everybody. Um, and no country in his mind is better than any, anybody else's because it's not about anybody else's country. It's about his kingdom, right? So I just wanted to say that. Uh, and, well, and see what's and, and and the thing about it, Cece, if I can just like riff in this way, I just I just feel the need to say like whenever anything like this is like said, this right here. This is basic Christianity. Like, this is so, like, this is not radical. That's what's so weird to me about the moment we're living in. To talk like this, people act like it's so radical. I'm like, no, this is normal Christianity. The idea that, like, we don't pledge our allegiance to anybody but Jesus because we believe in a king and a kingdom that transcends all nations' borders. Like, this is fundamental Christianity. It's the other stuff that's weird. (laughs) So I'm just, like, tired of living in this weird alternative reality with franklin graham where it's like boy you guys are really out there you're being provocative i'm like no you guys are being idolatrous this is as basic and plain you know i think from a new testament perspective as it could possibly be could you even imagine you know like um in the first century paul or peter and these early disciples getting riled up about, you know, how people, you know, now we have to show proper respect to the Roman empire. you got to make sure now, you know what I mean? Cause Roman heritage is awfully important. And like, what? Like we couldn't right. even imagine it, no. you know, it's just so, I, I just think, but, but it's, it's, it's just, it's just wild to me how weird this sounds to people yeah. in this moment that we live in. But for me to bring it back to some of the, like the, the framework of last week's conversation, because I think this matters a lot. It, or at least it matters a lot to me and to a lot of people that I know. Um, and I do understand again, why this, why there's real tension here. I think when people have grown up inside of any sort of a church system where they feel like um, injustice has not been resisted, mm-hmm. when they do feel like um, they've seen people been marginalized and left out and they have seen a, a Christianity that seems co-opted by the empire mm-hmm. and, and seems to serve that. And I think, and I think that's a, that's a fair critique. Again, I'm not, 
I'm really not trying to de-Christian anybody. I'm certainly, I never judge the, the status of anybody else's soul. I really don't. I have no, I won't even begin to speculate about Franklin Graham or Jerry Falwell Jr.'s relationship with God or the state of their souls. I will tell you authoritatively and dogmatically, they do not preach anything remotely like the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, as it has been understood for 2000 years in Catholic or Orthodox Protestant Pentecostal or Anabaptist forms, they're heretics. I'm just saying, tweet it all you want. They are heretics. And I don't have said that in a long time. I've been behaving for so long and I'm tired of behaving. They are heretics. Anyway, um, but, but I do get why people like, especially when they hear, I don't know why I'm even doing this. I'm just all this, I'm making trouble for myself right now. But when people like grow up around all that and they see that and they see the effects, and I and I don't want to minimize that when they see like real hurt, when they um, uh, the, that some of those systems, especially when the when, when it's done in the name of Jesus. And there is something I think that's um, uniquely vile about that. When people are oppressed in the name of Jesus, uh, enslaved in the name of Jesus, pushed down in the name of Jesus. But um, what I was getting to before uh, we uh, the, my, our technical glitches here. My friend Lisa Sharon Harper, who's an amazing human being, if she ever hears this, Lisa, I love you, um, wrote a thread on Twitter. I don't think I've ever quoted something from Twitter in a sermon because I would feel much more like, oh, I need to quote something from the church fathers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, uh, I, I'll put this from Lisa Sharon Harper up there with Irenaeus right now because this is, this is such good stuff. She writes a couple months ago, best thing I've ever read on Twitter, that's truth, and but so provocative. To all the people designated white by colonizing nations who are becoming disillusioned by your evangelical or Christian faith. When you walk away from Jesus, you are not woke. You're operating out of the white supremacy. You say you abhor when you walk away from Jesus and Christian faith to be quote woke. You're walking away from a faith that sprang from Brown indigenous colonized people. You're walking away from faith born on the underside of empire in the context of oppressed peoples. You're walking away from the faith of enslaved people who found such profound liberation in Jesus that they broke laws to gather together and worship in trees. You're walking away from faith that ignited ecclesiological resistance of Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, James Fortin. They insisted the image of God in them was equal to white Christians who would not pray with them. They founded the historic black church. When you walk away from Jesus, you're walking away from the faith of Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, Benjamin Mays, Howard Thurman, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, C.T. Vivian, Septima Clark, Ida B. Wells, Diane Nash, John Lewis, Jesse Jackson, Martin Luther King, Barack Obama. Hashtag you ain't woke. Hashtag liberating evangelicalism. When you walk away from Jesus, you're walking away from the faith of Cesar Chavez, Oscar Romero, Dolores Urta, Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa, and a faith that informed Gandhi's belief that every Indian man and a woman is a child of God. You are not woke when you reject Christianity in order to escape white supremacy. You are demonstrating just how captive you are to its fundamental belief that God and Jesus and Christianity and Santa are white. None of them are, and Santa is it real. Christianity is not white man's religion. It was hijacked and reinterpreted by white men whose nations traded slaves. These men's theologies did not prevent their nations from colonizing, financing colonization, and centuries of global slave trade. It is good and right to reject slaveholder religion, as our friend Jonathan Wilson Hargrove writes about. But it is arrogant, ignorant, and white supremacist to toss aside Christianity because of white supremacy. Christianity is the liberating religion of the enslaved. Holy crap. And amen. I don't even know if I get to say that, but Lisa Sharon Harper gets to say that, and I like it when she does. Yes. So, so let me, let me say this, that for the last 20 years, I guess, I have um, been in the evangelical church, predominantly the white evangelical church. Um, and, you know, it's got some problems. And, and we all know that. And in all honesty, you know, we all know, um, at least now, that we've got some real problems in the evangelical church mainly the the white evangelical church. I can 
it, it will take too long for me to talk today about what I think all those problems are. I do think I can speak to them, though, because I situated myself in that context for that long. I sold enough of my life to be able to speak to it. Right. I won't speak to it right now because we're running out of time. But you can I'll, if you want to. Yeah. I don't think anybody mind. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I even with all of his problems, I still identify as an evangelical. And a lot of people wonder why, like as a black woman, why do you still identify as an evangelical? Well, it's because I come from a people who don't throw things away. That's why it's because I have I have planted my life in a particular context and everything about that context isn't terrible. Everything about that wasn't awful and horrible. I couldn't have not have spent that kind of time there if it were. I've learned so much. I've grown so much. I loved so much. I have been loved so much. But now I'm in a position where I need to prophetically speak to some things. But that doesn't mean I don't love and appreciate. I still, uh, there's an exodus out of the evangelical church right now. And listen, I, I worked for the Obama administration for seven years before I moved to Oklahoma. I get it, right? Like, I understand very well why. I don't, I have not chosen to shed myself of that of that title because I believe in the power to reclaim because I believe in the classical definition of what it means to be an evangelical, to know God, to be close to God, to share God, to be in community with God, to feel that God's presence can be near and not just something transcendent. Right. For me, those are the that's the core of what it means to be an evangelical. And I'm not going to let anybody take that from me. And that that is what I think African-American theology, liberation theology can kind of add to this conversation that I don't I don't have to run. I can I can stand right here where I am, where I've always been and tell you the truth. You might we might not like it, but we are going to wrestle this thing out until Jesus is revealed. I don't have to run from you. I don't have to take off and go anywhere. Right. And so for me, I don't need to shed those labels. I don't need to shed being evangelical because at its core, I still believe in what it is supposed to mean for me. And I think for me, instead of an, an exodus, we need an exfoliation. Wow. wow. Right? Instead of running away from everything that has offended us, scared us, or whatever the situation is. And in some of those, some of those contexts, we've needed to run. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying there is, there is a time and a place to stand and say, you're not taking Jesus from me. You're not taking what I believe about this faith from me and if we've got to wrestle like like Jacob and the angel then bring it on but it'll be a healthy wrestle because out out of the out of at the end the the goal is for us to be closer it's to be more more like Christ is to be it's to be one like like John 17 talks about, right? When Jesus prays for his disciples and us, for those who would come after his disciples. That's what, what the scripture is about today. And so the exfoliation, you know, exfoliation is a process where you get, get rid of dead skin. And I think that that's really what the church is, ha- what's happening with the church right now. You know, we're going through a cycle that the church goes through every hunt, every few hundred years where we have to revisit and redecide who we are and who we want to be and and what we've missed in this gospel and what we're wrong about. And let me say this, I think that's one of that is for me the biggest question that we should be asking ourselves always. And we haven't done that well in evangelicalism. We haven't done that well as Christians. We should always be asking, what am I wrong about? What are we wrong about? Because trust, they were wrong about some things a hundred years ago, and we're wrong about something today. We just don't know what it is. 
If they would have asked, what are we wrong about? Slavery could have ended faster. You understand? If we would start to ask ourselves as a church more critical, intrinsic questions, we will be faster along our way. And so we need an exfoliation of getting rid of dead skin, the things, the stuff that, that doesn't have any use anymore, you know, the things that, that hide our glow, right? But, but for me, we don't need, and I don't, I, I'll speak for me, okay? I don't need an exodus because I'm, I'm pretty gangster when it comes to Jesus. Like, seriously, like we can, we can debate about what he did, who he was, blah, blah, blah. But I know, and this is something we see in the African-American church all the time. I know that I know that I know. And when I know it to this degree, you can't tell me nothing that will move me outside of what I know. So, I don't need to run away from this. I do need to dust it off. I do need to exfoliate. I do need to read again. I do need to find safe community. But I don't need to. I, uh, he's been too good to me. And and I listen, I can't tell it all. I'm talking like a black person talks in a black church right now, okay? He's been too good to me. I can't tell it all. Like, if I had a thousand tongues, I couldn't praise him enough. Like, all of that <laughs> is Jesus for me. And so that's just what I want. When we talk about reclaiming tonight, and I know we need to move on. When we talk about reclaiming tonight, that's what I want to encourage. I want to encourage a generation and a people that can exfoliate and not exodus. That can get away, get rid of the dead skin without getting rid of Jesus. Because I think that's more than possible. We've done it. We've done it. African-American people have done it over and over again. Other people groups have done it over and over again. And we can do that too. I hope, we, I hope we're all really hearing this and we'll listen and hear it again. Because I just think this whole thing of not exodus, but exfoliation is so powerful. It's so powerful. Because do you hear how like none of this minimizes the problem? Like there's still language here to acknowledge sin, to acknowledge corruption, to acknowledge pain, to say like that there's real transformation or as I talked about last week, transfiguration that's needed. It's not minimizing any of that, but just saying, I don't know. I just, I mentioned this kind of in a fast way last week, but I've thought about it so much more since just this idea that, I mean, I really think it's even how the, the, the imagery and the language of the cross works, even for the earliest Christians. They're not just Jesus, but early Christians are crucified or tortured and killed on crosses. And yet the very thing on which this image of their shame is reclaimed by them in a way that says like, oh, oh, this becomes a symbol of our faith and worship. We're talking about the cross. We worship the crucified God. There's so much power in that. Like that instead of running away from this, that there's a reclaiming that, that takes the power away from the oppressor. Like there's, I just think there's something so, powerful about that. And I'm probably all the more wound up about this because, um, you know, I got back at six o'clock this morning, uh, driving all night from Chattanooga. Uh, my friend, Rachel Holt Evans, of course, died a few weeks ago and we just had the funeral yesterday. And I just, I feel like even that's so much of her legacy to me was here is this person who grew up in a certain kind of bubble was told that she couldn't ask the kind of questions that she asked, that there, that the church, there wasn't room for her doubt. There weren't room for her questions, uh, all of that. But she, but she insisted that there was room for her. She insisted that there was a place for her and for us in the broader story of the church. And she wouldn't let anybody take the Bible out of her hands and she wouldn't let anybody take Jesus away from her. And, and my favorite book of hers is a book called searching for Sunday. And I feel like that's, that's, that's so much what it's about is that process of reclaiming that on the other side of, yes, there might be, there is a season of sifting and sorting and there's uh, you know, there's, there's some things that we have to dial from. I mean, I think, you know, it is important to name, injustice and sin even within Christian tradition because it keeps us starting from a posture of humility. I don't know a single storyline in the church of like any major movement or people that doesn't have significant injustice and sin in it. So to name ourselves as part of a particular people or a particular story means we always have to start from a posture of repentance. You know? We always have to own those parts of our story too. You know, I think that's 
I, I just, I just think that's incredibly, incredibly significant. But this whole business of, of reclaiming, I know we need to land this and just a couple moments where to come to, uh, the Lord's table. Um, Cece, I can't thank you enough. I feel like all this, it just, it's just, it's powerful because I think what it does is it just, it, it just shifts the framework because, and I'm, I'm doing my best in all this, not use academic language, but it's like my, I think it's part of what my pushback has been in some of these conversations is that not that deconstruction language can't be helpful to a point, but that when whiteness is kind of what centers there, (laughs) it's just, it's just very different. And um, I just, I appreciate you preaching to us and preaching Jesus to us. I mean, part of what I'm seeing and hearing in all this too, Cece, and what you're saying is that I just think for a lot of us, you know, Jesus is the reason that we feel like we have to resist. Like Jesus is the one that gets us out of bed to do that. You know, so it's kind of like, cause that, that's the thing that could, that's a little sad for me sometimes is I think people, they might rightly recognize that something from their faith tradition is really lacking and they move away from that. But if all you ever do is sort of identify that problem, but then you don't find a way to constructively engage that and you just kind of walk away from that. Well, you know, again, I feel like that's what, what you said about evangelicalism is what I've so experienced kind of on the Pentecostal side, because I don't know, I never quite used the label evangelical quite as much. So maybe I'm a little more ambiguous about it, but like in my world, I mean, I just last night on Twitter, there's a video that's being circulated heavy right now where a famous charismatic pastor is getting questioned about his private Learjet. And man, it's just the most cringy thing you've ever seen. And I know that a lot of people, when they hear the word Pentecostal, that's what they think of. And it makes me cringe as much as anybody. But, you know, it's like my the reason I still use that word, even though I know it feels problematic for a lot of people, is, you know, what the Pentecostal movement is to me is, you know, you have a one-eyed son of a slave in William Seymour and a rundown shack in Los Angeles in 1906. And you've got people uh, from every ethnicity worshiping together. You've got women preaching. This is 50 years before Jim Crow laws are repealed. I mean... Who but the Holy Spirit could do that? That's my heritage. That's where I come from. So I'm not willing to concede Pentecostalism to the televangelist when there are these radical roots. I think there is a reclaiming that needs to happen and a a way of, uh, and and, and it's so empowering. So thank you for anything else you would add. Because I just see, see, I just think if you, I just don't, I don't want to quench the spirit here. Um, Not really. You know what I really want to do? I want to take two questions. Mm. From the audience. Would that be okay? Could we, anybody have, we're going to take two questions and make them as quick as we can because I know we need to. Okay, I've got a question. <laughs> Talk to us a little bit about how we walk through this journey without really succumbing to kind of a fragility. We've talked about this before because this can be an issue when it comes to race relations. We've done things before in race and we've had to deal with this issue of white fragility. Uh, but at the same time, there's trauma and it's legit. So if you could speak to that. Fragility. I, I want to be, I, I want to be respectful because uh, what I don't want people to leave uh, with, I don't want people to leave with the idea that I don't um, honor the, the trauma that folks have spiritual trauma that people have walked through and maybe are walking through right now, because I really, I, I do. Um, I think addressing issues of fragility are really important when we talk about deconstruction and reclaiming because There and, and I think this is what maybe Jesus was kind of getting to, or at least what I kind of see when he prays for the disciples and for the disciples after the disciples, which will be us in John 17. I feel like Jesus is almost praying for a sense of our sturdiness, our groundedness. You know, he talks about like as 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 I am in the Father, allow them to be in us kind of language, right? And so for me, the oneness that he kind of talks about to some degree in John 17, uh, specifically 20 through 26, kind of talks about a groundedness, right? A sturdiness. And we will never grow to be sturdy or grounded if every wind comes by, blows us down. And so 
when we talk about fragility, that's another thing that I don't feel like um, African-American um, sp- uh, spirituality knows a lot about because we haven't had the luxury to be fragile. Our, our main existence since 1619 in the Americas has been about making other people comfortable. And so when we talk about fragility from, from an African-American Christian perspective, I don't, I, I don't have a lot of framework for it because I don't, I don't see it a lot. What I would say is that we can't run from things. I would say that the things that we would want to run from, we need to start staring down. I would say that we don't get stronger um, unless we confront the wind. And fragility won't allow us to, to come together. If we, if we stay in spaces of just being fragile, right, and not, not growing roots and becoming sturdy spiritually to Father, Jesus and the Father and us and them, right, and being grounded in that, then I don't know where we can, there's, there would be so much fracturing in the body that I don't know how we would be the body. You understand? I don't know how we would be the body. And so that's all, that's all that I, I really can say because I don't have a, I see fragility a lot. And it's real, but I don't have a good framework for it. Oh, um, the African baby you're talking about? Okay, I don't, and, and you probably need to dig a little bit more out of me because I don't know. But let me let me say this: that um, last summer I was uh, in an African hair shop on Western Avenue, getting my d- daughter Halo's hair braided. You walk into this, you walk into this shop and it's like you have entered like a village in Senegal. You know, there are African women there with their babies on their backs, braiding hair. And it's really, really cool because it takes hours to braid hair. And so we're just sitting there for hours. So this lady has this baby, her baby on a sofa asleep. And the baby wakes up after some time and the lady is still braiding Halo's hair. So I go over to pick up the baby and um and you know hold the baby and walk the baby around until the lady is done I had a very very spiritual experience with this um in that Malika somebody's over there with some bags I don't know but in that in that I looked at this baby in the face and it dawned on me almost immediately that I had never held I've, I've never held an African baby I've held a lot of African-American babies, but African and African-American are not the same thing, right? I've never held an African baby. I had a very intense experience in that when I looked into this baby's eyes, it was as if like something what happened in my brain where um, like tape rolled back. And in this baby's eyes, I could see, I could see every African-American baby that had been left under a tree while their mama had to pull cotton or every African-American baby who has suffered extreme heat or extreme cold or every African-American baby whose milk was literally taken from them to feed to the master's baby. And so they suffered malnutrition. I, I saw like all of these scenes and I got up, I put, gave the baby to somebody else. I walked outside and it makes me cry now. I had to take laps around. I had to take laps around this. Sorry. I had to take laps around this building to kind of get myself together. Because what, what came to me was a, a, um, a DNA memory. It was a, I'm a, I just wanted to scream from all the things that I had seen in my mind. And what I realized, one of the things that I realized in that experience is that I don't have the luxury 
to ever run away after what my people have been through. For every baby who died because they were not treated like a baby, I do not ever have the luxury to run, to hide, to give up. I do not have that luxury. And I don't know what Malika all wanted to get out of that story. Fragility. Fragility. (laughs) So do you understand? I don't have time to be fragile. I don't have time to be fragile because I feel an enormous responsibility, an enormous responsibility for all the people that I know and mostly the people that I have never known to push our ball forward. I don't have time to do anything but move forward because this isn't just my story. This is a story in a huge context that I cannot afford to, to give up on. Does that speak to it a little bit? Okay. You know, so yes, let's clap, please. Um, Amen. I feel like CCU, when you, you speak with such prophetic power and precision, but I think especially in the front of that being very gentle because you, you never accuse or any of that. What I, Part of what I feel like you're, what I hear in all that, because, you know, I don't feel like you're minimizing anybody's trauma, but what I hear is that that experience, which I think is part and parcel of, you know, more broadly what your life is about, you're rooted and grounded in a broader story, the Christian story, yes, but also a story about what it means to be black in America that doesn't minimize anybody else's trauma, but it might relativize it because like how many times have I heard people say, and I mean like, and, 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 and God bless us all. But when people say like things have never been as bad as they've been since 2016 and you'd be like, man, how long have you been alive? And like, you know, like, and where, 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 where do you come from? You know, like, like, I think there's a certain like um, just a lack of, you know, a lack of, a lack of perspective that sometimes come out of all that. And what I hear you like you doing is like such a, there's again, a a grounding, a larger story. It doesn't say that somebody else's pain is not real pain, but kind of does call for like a, a contextualization that when we think historically about, you know, like kind of where we come from and where, you know, all of our people come from and the, the the sort of blood on the soil <laughs> it, it on the ground on which we're we're standing it does it it it, it does bring a certain kind of a kind of humility that's there and i just think I, I just continue to find it so and again i never feel like this is something i can't lecture anybody about it but i learn from it all the time it's so interesting to me that it feels like the people who've been on the underside that the most are the bravest and the most uh courageous and then i feel like it's people like me who've experienced the least, who are the most squeamish. (laughs) You You said something important, and this would be the last thing that I say. Context is so, so important. And I think we fall short sometimes when we limit limit our context. Mm -hmm. Your context is not just the last church you were a member of, right? Your context isn't just the last 10 years of your life. Your context is a huge, belongs in a huge story that is over 2000 years old. And I, I think that that could be helpful in, in thinking about how we, we live in a, in a bigger story that is, that is not, it's not this big. You know what I mean? That we, we are part of a story that is larger than the, than 2016. That's larger than what's going on right now. We're, 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 we belong to something much bigger than that. We belong to, to, the, to this faith. And this faith belongs to us. And so I think that it's very important that, that we contextualize well. That we're not just talking about a church you were part of that wasn't so great. We're talking about a, a faith. A faith that, that a, a brown man died on a cross. It doesn't even matter that he's necessarily brown, but I would say he's brown. That a brown man died on a cross for our sins and the sins of the whole world. 
that we can be a part of a kingdom that comes right here. Forget 2016. We got work to do right now. You know, forget who's in the White House today. We got work to do right now. And so I think that's helpful is that we see ourselves in the in the broader, bigger story than what has ever happened in the last 10 years of our lives or two years of our lives or the last church we were in. Yes, that's so good, Cece. One more time, could you give Cece a hand? I'm so grateful for your wisdom. Thank you for listening today. More from Jonathan Martin. Go to jonathanmartinwords.com and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. If you want to support this podcast and help us keep going, go to patreon.com slash sonofapreacherman and we appreciate your support. Remember, no matter who you are or where you come from, we hope this podcast will help you come to know the love that calls you by your true name. God bless.